It's a Magic Untapped podcast on magicuntapped.com, YouTube, and your favorite source for podcasts. Hello, Magic players. Barry White from Magic Untapped. Time for another Magic Untapped podcast. Joining me this time around is Jim Avery, one of the writers on Magic Untapped. Jim, say hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, Barry. I like the set that you're casting from today. Thank you very much. Gotta love these virtual backgrounds you can do on Zoom. I finally have a good enough computer where I can actually kind of pull them off. Gotta, gotta love uh, being able to find one of those RTX video cards. Those things are almost as rare as a PS5. Oh, goodness, yes. That's... You you need to be in there in the first two seconds if you want to buy one of those. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And, you know, um, congratulations to anyone who was able to snatch up one of those. And uh, while we're uh, handing out accolades, I want to go ahead and hand out a nice big thank you to our Patreon supporter, Lino Hernandez. Thank you very much for the support. And if you're listening to this and you want to go ahead and throw a Buckner tip jar and uh, become a supporter, Go ahead and head on over to patreon.com slash magic untapped. Just a dollar will make a difference. That was cheesy. A dollar <laughs> will make a difference. I mean, it's technically true. A dollar will make a big difference. Yeah, was... really? For just one dollar, you can help this struggling podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we will even send you a picture of no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're not gonna send you anything. Uh, but Wizards of the Coast is sending everybody uh, a nice little thing today. Time Spiral Remastered just came out today, Jim. Uh, are you excited about this release? And I would be a lot more excited if I could play this release. But unfortunately, it's a paper set, and we're not really living in paper times. So. We're not really living in paper times. Uh, spell table's a thing. I don't know if you've had a chance to check that out yet. So you can kind of do paper magic uh, via webcam. I guess that's true. I, I have not tried anything of that sort yet. I am living a very lonely hermit life. <laughs> a very lo- lonely Magic the Gathering arena and online only hermit life. Yeah, very much so. Start calling you Uncle Istavan. But um, <laughs> aside from that, I mean, I know you've looked at the cards. You've been curious, Jim. Um, we have technically two sets coming out. We have the Time Spire Remastered set. Uh, which are uh, select hand, uh, hand-selected reprints from Time Spiral, Planar Chaos, and Future Sight. But we also have the Time-Shifted cards, which is taking a cue from the original Time-Shifted cards from the Time Spiral set, although back then they were old cards being brought back. This time they're, they are newer cards being printed in the old frame. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, between the two, Jim, do you have a favorite, uh, a favorite Time-Shifted card and a favorite non-time-shifted card in this set? I do, in fact. If we're looking at the time-shifted cards, there's a lot of wild ones in there, but I think my favorite has got to be uh, Etali Primal Storm. When I saw this card, I said a swear word. (laughs) I was just, is this card for real, basically? It seems just, it's, it's just so powerful. I love this. You just can grab things from your opponent's hand, and not your hand, they're a library, and just play them. Yeah, it, you know, and it's a 6-6 six, six for 6, which is nice. It uh, mm-hmm. doesn't have haste, uh, but that would be that would be bonkers, considering all it does for 6 mana. And uh, it was definitely one of the better of the dinosaurs from, from Ixalan. So I think that's a, a fine choice and definitely a very splashy card there. Uh, for, for me, if we're sticking with the, uh, the Time Spiral card, or the Time Shifted cards, uh, I'm, I'm really big on Thoughtseize 
that coming out in Black Border, uh, partially because it would be nice to have a Black Border Thoughtseize to run in my legacy decks, which tend to have the older border, order, older framed cards in it to begin with. Uh, but also, when I pick up my box here later today, I'm, I'm really hoping to get a foil one so I can flip it on eBay and buy two. <laughs> <laughs> maybe three i don't know of the uh, of the non-foil ones so a little on the finance side a little on the nostalgia side um for me for you know as being a legacy player but uh, as far jim as the uh, the non-time shifted cards the normal cards you have a a card or two there that you're happy made the cut there's i wrote down three of those cards and i'm going to attempt to pick two of them uh one of them it's is all three what the heck Pick all th okay, I'll go ahead and pick all three. I have your uh, Teferi, Mage of Zalfir, which I love because it's just like resting complete control of the battle away from your opponent. Like they cannot disrupt you anymore. Mm -hmm. I also have uh, Akroma's Memorial, which is just like an enormous boost to all of your creatures and, and really an enormous boost. And it seems, it seems play in Commander, so that, that is a good card to include. And the last one I would say is Gauntlet of Power, which is just like a huge ramp after turn five. And then just the gates just fly open, which is great for Commander, I think. And also it um, kind of comes off of Gauntlet of Might from uh, from the OG Magic set from uh, way back when. So nice little, um, nice little uh, uh, retro flavor win off of that one as well. Not bad choices, Jim. Um, I'm, I'm happy about a few of these myself. One of them is a land gemstone caverns. Um, it's definitely a very good tournament, tournament level card. Sees a lot of play in modern and uh, in I believe in modern in legacy. I know for sure. Um, and it, it really was sorely needing a reprint. Um, it had been kind of a forgotten dollar card for a while. And then starting in about 2016, it just started jumping up and up and up. The card is worth somewhere around 50, 55, $60 right now. So definitely financially a much needed reprint uh, there with uh, that one. Um, also always nice to see another reprint of Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth. It, that one has been reprinted a few times, but um, Honestly, I think it would, the, the set would feel like it's missing something if that card weren't uh, included, especially when you consider that they are printing uh, as a time-shifted card, Yawgmoth Thran Position. So you get Yawgmoth uh, alive and Yawgmoth dead, I suppose, uh, with, with that printing. And then, of course, having another printing of, of Damnation, the Black Wrath of God. Who's going to complain about that? I mean, unless you're on the receiving end of the card, mm -hmm. I guess. Oh, I'll, I'll be complaining a lot about that part, I'm sure. <laughs> now, um, this uh, the first time Wizards is um, putting out a remastered block and paper. They've done it a few times on Arena with Amonkhet and Kaladesh. They've done it on MTG Online uh, with uh, Timus Remastered. I, I'm going off the top of my head. I'm sure there's one or two others. Uh, that stated, Jim, is this something you'd like to see them do again? I definitely would not mind seeing them do this again. Sure. I would think, like I've said on a few times that I stopped playing Magic for a little while, and I got back into it right around uh, the block that included War of the Spark, which was is still one of my favorite things to play. With so yeah, many te technically not a block. They, they moved away from the block thing, but it was the third set in a row to take place in Ravnik, so it was kind of like a block in spirit, so I'll give you that. Yeah, let's, let's combine this block in spirit into a remastered set. 
you know, there'd be, a, I mean, a little on the too soon side because they're still easy to find, but maybe a handful of years down the road, you know, I, I think that would be an excellent idea, especially with the high proliferation of planeswalkers. Proliferation of planeswalkers, save that five times fast. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm surprised I did it the first time. But <laughs> that, no, that's actually not a bad idea looking forward. Um, well, looking yeah. backwards, though, um, I would love to see them do an Urza's block remastered. I know there's a lot of cards they can't reprint uh, be because of the reserved list, but there's a lot of cards they can reprint. I, I would, I think I would love to see that. Um, another one that we, would be fun, especially coming off of Kaldheim, would be, I think, Ice Age remastered, being Ice Age Alliances in Cold Snap, which was inserted into the block um well after those those original sets came out but seeing those all married together might be kind of nice as well i uh, think so. I, I, that's a good point like when they went back to cold snap they were like can we reimagine some of the mechanics here and it's like what if they just reinvented the whole block with what they know now right came out with a very synergistic or as synergistic as you can get uh based on the age difference between the the, the first two and the final set i think it could be fun you know, I mean, the nostalgia would be very high on that, if nothing else. Oh, that's true. And I think they could do a lot more things now with uh, the snow mechanic, which went woefully underused its first time around. It really did, especially in uh, the follow-up set, Alliances. I'm going to say four, maybe six cards total uh, in that entire uh, Alliances set mm -hmm. uh, had uh, snow uh, in mind. Uh, but, Jim, it's the time of the show where we go ahead and, uh, and uh, talk to a special guest, you ready for this? I'm not ready for this, but let's go. Okay, joining us for our interview segment is Dave Howell. Dave is a former Wizards of the Coast employee from way back in the day in the early 1990s. Since then, he has been nominated for a Hugo Award, that's the Science Fiction Awards, and is currently working on a musical retelling of Wizard of Oz. Dave, how are you? Thank you for joining us. You're welcome, and I'm great, thanks. I feel just underqualified to talk to you hearing your voice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have failed at many, many things. I'm quite accomplished in that way. Uh, <laughs> well, we all have to be accomplished at something, I guess, right, Dave? <laughs> well, um, anyway, but no, you are uh, definitely a well-accomplished person with a, a laundry list of accolades uh, to your credit. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about some of those early days. You were uh, you were there at Wizards of the Coast back when it was the uh, old uh, Lighthouse logo for uh, logo, yes. yes, those of us who uh, who remember the uh, the early '90s. Anyway, yeah. tell what was it like back in the day there at Wizards of the Coast? Um, I mean, sure, a lot different than it would be today. Yeah, I mean, it was. What was it like? I mean, that would that would require I had something useful to compare it to, I suppose. Um, I, I actually started the company two years before Magic came out. I was, the, because they're, as many people forget, their first products were role-playing supplements. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I had gotten roped in because, um, Peter, the president of the company had married, um, someone who was in my class at high school and who had been in my Dungeons and Dragons group. Um, so a few years later, uh, I'm working in the IT department of a college, and I get this, uh, I'm not even sure it was email, because, I mean, at the time, email was such a rare thing. Most people didn't have it. It was um, definitely in its infancy back then. 
Yeah, because my address was Whitman.bitnet. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it wasn't even a it wasn't even a dot com address or edu or anything like that. It was a cellphone separate system. It was an electronic message. Yeah, so it, it may have been, but it was probably a phone call, um, or even maybe a letter. I I don't remember, but I do remember that it was a, a friend Telegraph. of mine. Beep, 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 beep. Well, no, we didn't have those anymore. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was they're like, hey. Um, my friend, you ever Kathy Couch? Sure, I do. Now Kathy Atkinson. Um, her husband and a bunch of her, his friends are working on this role-playing supplement, and we wanted to send chapters out for people to read and, and make comments on. Do you want one? I'm like, sure, that sounds like fun. So I did, and then they had another chapter that they still hadn't gotten out. I was the first one back, so they sent me that, and then they got a hold of me and said, hey, um, they really like your comments. They think you've got something, and some of the other comments along with yours have said that the book is a little a little dry it reads a bit like a textbook and so we were wondering if you'd be willing to take a stab at rewriting it and making it more user-friendly so the result was i ended up being a, a co-author of, of the woc 0001 the primal order mm -hmm. um and so that kind of roped me into the circle and so i i moved to seattle i was living actually on the other side of the state at the time um, and was trying to find work and I've had part-time work as a security guard and stuff. But in the meantime, I would go down there fairly often to help out, uh, look and see what new product to come in, um, continue doing some typesetting and ended up writing uh, an expansion of, of, I think it was chapter seven was about planes in the primal order. And they decided they wanted a whole book on that. Um, and that was a chapter I'd kind of expanded for them. So I ended up writing one of the supplements. Um, which was introduced to Gen Con 93, along with another product that made people kind of not notice the book, because that was <laughs> the year we brought Magic out. So it's like, there's this other game that kind of drew everyone's attention. Bit of a mixed blessing there. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, uh, so I would, you know, drop by, I don't know, once or twice a week. And it was just, it was, uh, Peter and Kathy had rented a, a large house and they lived upstairs and downstairs was where the business was. So, you know, a couple computers and a couch and, you know, there was the bathroom there and there was a little kitchen that we could put snacks in. And so it was just kind of a uh, casual, people would drop in and out. Do people would, you know, it, because, because there was so little money in the company, um, sometimes what I was doing was work that was on an hourly basis as a contractor. And sometimes I was doing it just to be nice because, you know, Hey, if they stay in business, I get to have more work as a contractor. So so it was very casual. People would just sort of drop in and out. So just kind of hanging around. And so one day Peter's like, so we got this new, we got this uh, board game that someone sent us that they wanted us to try out, which was Robo Rally. We're all like, this is really cool. And then Peter looked into it and he said, and it's really expensive to bring out a board game. And since we're not doing board games, I think we've got to tell them no. And Robo Rally had a lot of little parts, I believe, right? It did, but it, it's, whether it has a lot of little parts or a few little, it doesn't get much cheaper. It's still... It's going to run you eighty to $100,000 to tool up, to make the boxes, to have it packed. It just doesn't, you know, a, cheap, a, a simple small game doesn't really get that much cheaper to launch. It gets cheaper to, to print again, but there's, I mean, you still got to test it and you've got to write the rule book and you've got to, you know, do all the design and layout. And so it just, there wasn't really a, a you know, aside from, the, from what James eventually came up with, there isn't really a good cheap way to do a board game. Um, so, um, so, you know, there we are, but then, uh, you know, the, the, the well-known story of Peter going, well, do you have something else, something that you could play in a line while you're waiting to get in to see a movie or something? And so soon enough, we were playtesting these Magic the Gathering cards that had come out. 
the interesting thing was along that way, Peter had, we, when we first, Peter, when, when Richard first contacted us, he was still a student at UPenn, but he graduated and got a job in my hometown. A small world. Of Walla Walla, Washington. Yeah. So, so I would end up going back and visit my parents and then I would go visit Richard. And so then we could, we, I did some play testing there. Um, years later, I went back and dropped into the, the book and game store there and they said, you know, magic was invented here. I'm like, Actually, I know all about magic, and that's only kind of true. <laughs> like, you're not wrong, but... But, yeah, it was invented here and Seattle and Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, but uh, sure, okay. Um, I'll let you claim that. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was very, very casual. And so it was only after we managed to get the, the whole thing done. He'd hired a bunch of people for the production run, and there's a whole... There's all kinds of stories involving just getting the cards out the door. And then once it had been sent off to Carta Monday in spring, we're like, okay, now we just sit around and wait until months later the cards come back and everything went back. You know, I was mostly doing my security guard work and occasionally dropping by and we were keeping tabs on, on Talislanta and, and Ars Magica and whatnot mm -hmm. until the day he says, they're going to be coming in. We all run down there and then the truck backs up and drops off these two pallets with shrink wrapped boxes. And uh, and the magic finally existed. What was that day like? The, the the day where the cards actually showed up for the very first time, and and I mean, was it like holding a new baby? Um. Well, I don't know. I've never held. I mean, I, I probably not. Um, I would. I would. I would think uh, I would be a lot more nervous about a baby. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, here were these these you know, large stacks of brown boxes all wrapped in plastic and, and I, someone grabbed a knife and slashed them open and Peter popped open the, the top box and pulled out, started pulling out starter packs and started handing them around. Everyone, here's your, here's your first starter. Um, and because magic was basically huge for the time, um, you know, these days, if you, if you go online, you might be able to find a, a five or even a, an eight terabyte hard drive. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's as big as I get. At the time, the biggest hard drive you could buy was a one gigabyte drive. Um, most people had, you know, 150 megs, something around that. That would be what a typical computer came with. The files for Magic took up 850 megabytes. Wow. We oh. had two of these one gig drives. Most people in the town hadn't even seen them because that's what it took to hold this thing. And um, back then, I was just, I was still running five and a quarter inch floppy disks. Yeah, you know, you could fit the artwork for one magic card on a floppy. We'd save it as JPEG. Um, so and we had three, you know, yeah, the stack of floppies. Yeah, yeah, forget it. Um, so the files were huge, and as a result, when we tried to print out even like black and white things in the laser printer, it would take two to three hours for one page to come out of the laser printer. So we it's like, we can't wait five days to find out what the cards look like. So it was, you know, we. We kind of had to be very careful about placing the text on the artwork because we couldn't really check it. We just had to make sure it was all lined up to start with. Um, and uh, yeah, so we didn't, we it's like, we have no idea. We know what it looks like on screen, kind of, sort of. Of course, the screens then weren't nearly the screens we have today. And uh, inkjet printers hadn't really been invented yet either. So you couldn't print out color. Yeah. Um, so, so we didn't know what they looked like. It's like, you know, we, we, we kind of sort of guessed, but we didn't really know for sure until the cards came. And so the first thing we wanted to do is like, open up and find out what they look like. What are they like? like and then Christmas. of course everyone ran inside and said, now we got to play. 
let's go. <laughs> um, so I know I flip over and we played for Antia because those are the rules. You, you each flipped over a card and whoever won the game took both. I so remember playing for Auntie. Demonic Attorney was my bane. Card. And I, I flip over my first card. I'm like, I wonder if that's one of the rares. I don't know because the list is long and I didn't memorize it. Um, but I do know it was a Helm of Chatsuck. So I eventually found out, yep, that was a rare card and I lost it. <laughs> of course it was. Of course it was, yeah. Now, now the game, so the game comes out. You guys get to finally see it. It's selling very well. Um, I know I've heard stories um, about grasping trying to get new cards and new expansions almost overnight uh and while that's going on you are talking with a book publisher about getting some magic the gathering books uh uh, uh not only just made but distributed and all that with a harper prism, harper prism. um yeah i mean it you not, had a finger on that to be fair it did take a little time to take off um in fact in the spring before the game came out, we'd already we had a mailing list, an email list that we could keep keep track of people on, and, and you know, and there were other places. And we were getting some feedback going, wait a minute. You say there's like 300 different cards, but when I buy a deck, I only get 60. I buy the game and I only get part of it. What kind of crap is that? What kind of scam are you running? I mean, we had a lot of pushback on that. It's like that sounds like that sounds like bogus. Well, how much what what? Yeah, it was sounds like baseball oh. cards. Mm. You know, we were yeah, maybe, but so I mean, some people were excited. Um, we we had a decent reputation in the industry for the for the role playing stuff. They knew that that our that the games we brought out were more innovative than some and reasonably well made. You know, we, we were not uh, you know, a new company, but not suspicious and weird and you know xeroxed and and flaky. So there was some reasonable expectation for it. And we had a few cases where we, you know, Peter gone to a local game store and demoed the playtest cards to get people interested in it. So we had some other people saying, no, actually it's really cool, but it still took a bit of time. I mean, it, it was it was doing okay before we got to Gen, it came out about a month before Gen Con. And before that, it, the the sales and the, the feedback were good enough. We're like, I, we're think, we think that this works. We're not, you know, we're, we're going to make money on this. Great. That's fantastic. That's what, that was the goal, to make money on it. Pay the bills. It was at Gen Con when people would come up and buy a deck and they'd go play it. And then they'd, their friends would come in and they'd want to, and then, you know, and it started snowballing there really fast. And we're like, okay, it looks like we've got a big success on our hands. And even then, you know, big success was like, we're going to have to print more sooner than next year, I guess, maybe. You know, even then, I remember, I don't know, like maybe a month after Gen Con, someone came in and said, yeah, I was at the local game store, and they said they had to order more because someone came in and bought the whole box. I'm like, they bought the entire box of boosters? Why would the they do that? Thing? That's crazy. Wow. We didn't, why would anyone do that? Yeah. Still, yeah, it, it took a while to to really get a, a grasp. And and uh, in spring, I think the following spring, uh, I was on my way to Australia um, for partly for Wizards of the Coast. And there was a layover. There was like a twelve-hour layover in Los Angeles. And my brother was um, going to school there at the time, or actually teaching there. And so he picked me up at the airport, and we spent some. He's like, well. You know, you say your game's doing really well, but of course, most people, even nine months later, it was still really a niche product. It was it was big in the game industry. Um, so it's doing really well, but I I don't know. I mean, how it's like, are you kidding? 
where's your local game store? We'll walk in and all you have to do is say, do you have that game? Just say that and see what happens. That, that phrase. Just, yeah. Do you have that game? They'll know what you mean. So we walk in um, and we look around and there is no sign of magic in the store. Not a hint. And I'm like, go ahead and try it. Well, he chickens out. He goes, so I was wondering if you know anything about this game, this, this magic, the card game. And the guy's like, oh my God, we can't keep it in stock. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is Pasadena. It's written your Caltech. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, no, I was like, see, you to totally could have said that game. He would have known what game you meant. Um, so yeah, and we had much the same thing uh, because Peter had actually had looked at um, the success of the Dungeons and Dragons novels, and he said we should do that too. We, yeah, we, we've got this great story going on of the Dominaria, and the, I, mean, I, I was part of the team that actually had to come up with a name for it. It's like, what are we going to call this place that everyone plays magic in? Yeah. Um, so he's like, we, we, and I'm like, well, if you want authors to write books, we're going to need to talk to them and the best place to do it would be at the World Science Fiction Convention, which is in three weeks. So if you want to do that, we need to move fast. Might <laughs> want to get tickets. In a room. Yeah. Um, so that's how I found myself uh, at the uh, in San Francisco uh, on Memorial Day of, of 93, knocking on the door of the Science Fiction Writers Association con suite going, um... I know I'm not a member, but I was wondering if anyone would want to talk to me. And they're like, someone who wants to pay authors money? Come right in, please. Um, Amazing and, how that uh, works. So I started making, yeah, although it wasn't until the World Fantasy Convention, in, which is always over Halloween weekend, that was where I made the key contact. Um, I'd actually gone to talk to Jody Lynn Nye to see if she would be interested, because we were still looking at doing an anthology at the time. And she was married to a guy named Bill Fawcett, who has written some books, but also does a lot of work kind of putting publishers and authors together and arranging deals. And he came to me and said, you are not doing this the right way. Um, you should be doing novels. I know the right people to do it. I know, and I know which publisher needs them um, because Harper at the time had just decided to launch a new science fiction line. They didn't have one at the time. That was Harper Prism being run by John Silbersack. So he's like, John, you need stories to launch to, to have for your for your launch day dave you need a publisher you guys need to talk to each other um and that worked out well it was funny though because john's idea was hey so you know he didn't know anything about the game he's like could we do some sort of thing where we could like maybe i don't know give away a free card with each thing and we're like probably yeah um okay what are you they're like yeah so we'll like we'll put a little coupon in the back i'm like you know you know, we're not going to need that you're going to sell plenty of this book without it the game is popular enough that that you know as long as the book isn't terrible and we're that's our job is to make sure that we can find a, an author and, and come up with a storyline and so, so our job is to deliver to you a manuscript that 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 you know meets our standards as well as yours that and we're we're on that but once we do that it'll say magic the other in the front we'll sell plenty of copies it's like yeah i'd feel better if we had a card I'm like well okay and the, the first public promos were born <laughs> and you know six, six months later, well actually it was longer i guess it was about a year later it was by the time we finally got the book written and the this whole cycle went through and john's like i should have listened to you guys because he he knew that the industry standard rate for people actually tearing the coupon out of the back of a book and sending it in was about one percent or so 
they were seeing return rates of higher than 20%. He's like, I turn mine in. I, I've got, I've got retailers who say that, that one person comes in and buys every book in the store and walks out or buys every book in the store, tears the covers off because you had to send the cover back with your coupon so that you couldn't do it, you know, zero or, or print it and, and, and request multiple copies. Not that anyone would do that. No. Um, so it's like someone walked in, bought like 20 copies of the book, tore all the covers off and <laughs> threw the books away and walked out. It's like, like, I told you, you didn't need, you know, they actually had to hire two extra staff members just to handle the mail because they were getting two to three bags of mail a day for people writing in to get those cards. That's incredible. Yeah. They sold over a million copies of the first book. And a good, good chunk of that was to get that, that first promo, I'm sure. Because here was a card that you couldn't get in the booster pack. The only way to get it was to mail it into guard. Beyond that, um, and something else that you've done for the game, you were the cyberspace liaison for Magic the Gathering. Um, how 90s does that sound? Hey, I made up that term. <laughs> I invented it. Well, you made it in the 90s. Well, yes. Um, because, uh, like I said, the, the game itself was such a monster that uh, in order to prepare the files for printing, you know, I'm like, okay, now we're doing Arabian, the first expansion, Arabian Nights, and we're doing Antiquities, and especially Legends is big. Um, so the computer would spend hours just processing the files to get them ready for printing. It would take two and a half to three, two and a half to four hours per quarter of a sheet. So with the regular, you know, when we did uh, revise, that's common, uncommon, and rare sheets, four quadrants each, 12 quadrants, 12 times, you know, whatever. It's like, it's, it's a couple of days worth of computer time, but that would tie the machine up. So, and we didn't have that many computers. It wasn't like there was one just set aside for me to do production on. So I ended up switching to a night shift. Everyone else used the computer for payroll and for you know generating the role-playing games and for keeping track of sales and whatever during the day. And at five, when they would go home, I would show up and then I would make the computer spend the whole night going digga 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 as it filled one hard drive full of, of files to go to the printer. So I'm just sitting there listening to the computer go digga 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 digga. Fortunately, one of Peter's friends uh, was a guy named Ken Case who had started a company called Omni. Um, who has sent, who had gone, who was even at that time known as one of the leading developers, software developers at, at the time for the Next machine. Eventually, they, when, when Next became the Mac OS X, they became, they're still a fantastically well respected Mac developer. But they were writing for the Next. And because they did that, um, they loaned Peter a, 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 a Unix machine. So we had our, our couple of Macs. And then in the corner was this black, mysterious, ominous pizza box. With the big monitor on it, that was that was the next the, the flat next box, and it had a a, a dial-up permanent connection into the University of Washington that put us on the internet. So we had a, a live internet connection without you having to use a modem in the office. And I'm sitting around going, I've got nothing to do. Guess I'll hang out on the email list and and you know answer questions and stuff. And pretty soon people start getting magic and they're writing in. Well, how does this card work? How what what are the rules for this? And so I started answering them. And if I didn't know it, then I would wait until Richard showed up and then I would ask him, so I, okay, how does this work? And he'd be like, ooh, that's a good question. And they go, you know, try and figure it out and come back and tell me and I'd, I'd hand it out. Um, and pretty soon there were a couple of people who were so enthusiastic that I would, I would log on, I'd be like, oh, here's a question. Oh, and here's someone answered it, but they, and they would always answer like, assuming, I mean, that's my understanding, but I'm, 
I'm not Dave, so you have to check with him. And I'd be like, yep, you got it exactly right. <laughs> Thanks for checking. <laughs> so eventually I'm like, you know, and, and the one person in particular, Beth Morrison, um, was like nailed it every time. She was, she'd always get there before me and she always had the right answer if it was something that there was an answer to. And so I contacted her and said, you know what? You're, you're beating me to the punch on a regular basis. Why don't I just appoint you as, you know, you can be official because you, since you're, you've been right so often, there's no point in saying all the time, but you'd have to check with, with Dave. This, well, I've, my ad email address was snark at the time, snarkatwizards.com. So it was usually, you'd have to check with snark um, to see. It's like, let's just have you stop doing that since you're right anyway. You can, so I, I, I said, you, you get the, the title of network representative, net rep, um, and I will be the speaker to net reps. Uh, so I'm going to be the cyberspace liaison. And pretty soon I found someone on Usenet that was also an expert and I appointed them. And pretty soon I started tapping people. And then it was like, it was like a quest. It's like, how many different places can I online, can I find someone that can be an expert and can answer questions there? Eventually we had Apple's eWorld, we had CompuServe, CompuServe uh, the Byte Information Exchange, uh, the Source, AOL, uh, there was uh, someone eventually did a website when the web was embedded. So the first web browser, uh, the NCIS Mosaic, came out about the time that Magic did. So when the web was a new thing, and it was invented about the same time Magic was. Um, there was uh, an FTP site. Uh, and I think I'm forgetting at least one or two. Um, but I eventually checked. And I mean, Microsoft did not have official representatives on more than half of those. Uh, WordPerfect did a pretty good job, but they only had like three places. There was no company in the world that had more official representatives online than Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, oh, that's impressive, Dave. Yeah, that, that is something I'm very proud of. Like, we were everywhere. Microsoft eat your heart out. Um, <laughs> but in part, it was because, of course, we had, a, we had a product that was so fun, so cool, so interesting that people would happily do this work for free, you know. I mean, at one point I sat down and said, okay, if we were paying people to do this, it, it, like, it would cost us about a quarter million dollars a year. That's, that's what we weren't spending on it. Um, so eventually I, I, uh, I went to the manager and said, you know, these people are doing a ridiculous, you know, three or four hours a day they're putting in just because they like us. We really ought to do something for them. And so I talked uh, Peter and, and you know, the other uh, management into um, basically we, we uh, it, was, it worked out to basically $100 a month of, of, of company credit um, that a net rep could spend on stuff. And, that, and you'd spend that on basically the retail value. And what that meant was since we were releasing a game every, you know, a new expansion every two or three months, three months kind of what we were shooting for, um, that you'd have $300 of credit saved up, which was enough to buy a whole box. So basically every rep could, could buy a box of the new product when it came out. And, you know, I'm like, and of course that we're not paying retail for it. So it was still peanuts for the company but for them to be the first person on their block to have the new game and to have a whole box full of it was kind of awesome right so so yeah it was it was win-win it was fantastic now real quick you you notice in the background that uh you notice the old tilted t the old tap symbol you you said that uh that's uh kind of your baby because the, as 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 people who, who've seen the alpha cards know it used to say tap two it had the word tap and then two and then do this mm. And, uh, and there were two kinds of artifacts. There were mono artifacts and poly artifacts. Right. Mono artifacts, you had to tap when you used them. Poly artifacts, you didn't. And we were sitting around trying to figure out how to 
if there was a way to simplify that because there was something else that needed to do, like we're going to be tapping enchantments never tapped i don't remember what exactly what it was but i'm like you know lands tap we, we could just we could you know since we've already got a cost to do things of you know pay two mana it was you know mana mana colon thing we could just make tapping another we could make a symbol for it and put it in there just part of the cost and then we can have one kind of artifact and you know if it's got the tap and the cost or not we're good and they're like hey that works great okay so now we need a symbol for it let's take a t put it in a circle and make it crooked no, <laughs> some sometimes it's just that simple Sounds like you were just like flying by the seat of your pants with like how quickly things are moving with this game. Always, always, yeah. Uh, you know, um, come to work and find out. Oh, we have a UK office now. What we do? When did that happen? You know, kind of a thing. Yeah, it is particularly yeah. The, the company, um, you know, it's like we should have a, a a club or organization to handle tournaments and and events. And you know, the right guy was standing around. It's like. Hey, you want to do that? Great. You're appointed. Now we have one. Off we go. Now we have the DCI. Um, yeah, it was it was very much on the fly, make it up as you go. Um because just because the demand was, you know, people were were hammering on the door going, "We want more." And we're like, "Okay, we're we're working on it." So yeah, I mean just you know no one had ever done a trading card game before. So you know, I, I think it's amazing that, you know, sure it was first, but if it hadn't been as good as it was, the second or third would have swept it away. Um, so I think it's it's really quite a testament that, that the very first attempt at this game turns out to be the one that has done the best and lasted the longest. Um, it's kind of cool. Well, Dave, this is uh, great having you on, but we didn't just bring you on here to talk about uh, Old School Wizards of the Coast and the early days of Magic. We brought uh, you here also to play a game we're calling Magic Related, the game where we're asking you magic-related questions, but not necessarily related to Magic the Gathering. <laughs> oh, goody. All right, Dave, so this time around, we're going to be asking you about the magic of Disney, Walt Disney Company, the magic of Disney. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, Alrighty. Question number one. I have it right here on the sheet that keeps on keying out here. Question number one. Wayne Allwine, who voiced Mickey Mouse from 1983 until his death in 2009, had a special relationship with Rosie Taylor, who voiced Minnie Mouse from 1986 until her death in 2019. What was it? Was it A? After meeting in a hallway before a 1998 TV special, the two became married. B, Taylor was Allwine's high school sweetheart, lost contact with her until the late 1980s when Taylor got the Minnie Mouse role. Or C, they're actually brother and sister in real life with Rusi taking the name Taylor after marrying Tim the Toolman Taylor. I was going to say all three of these sound very plausible, but thankfully one of them just became less plausible. Just, just a smidge. Uh, let's go with Med in the Hallway. Go with Med in the Hallway? Yeah. Uh, well, good news. You got uh, a point for that one. Uh, they were actually married uh, for almost 20 years at, after that, actually, up until uh, Wayne Allwine's uh, death in 2009. So good job on that there, Dave. Uh, question number two. 
Dumbo, the amazing flying elephant, almost made it under the cover of a big time magazine. Which one? A. Sports Illustrated nearly featured Dumbo playing baseball in a 1996 issue after the Walt Disney Company bought a controlling stake in the Anaheim Angels, but they went with Donald Duck and Goofy instead. B. Time Magazine in 1941, where they were going to name him Mammal of the Year. Or C, Enquest Magazine nearly featured Dumbo as a Magic the Gathering card for their April 1998 issue as an April Fool's joke. Let's go with C. You can go with Enquest Magazine. Are you sure you want to go with that one? Not anymore. <laughs> um, you're leading the witness. Hey, that's that's part of the game. I, I've, I've seen the original. <laughs> um, I mean, that's it, it, you're good because that seems so plausible. Um, the, Lord knows there were lots of people in the early days of magic who got into publishing without really knowing what copyright law looked like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was one of the many things I got to spend time doing in between cranking out cards. Um, so let's go with Sports Illustrated. You go with Sports Illustrated. It was actually Time Magazine. The uh, issue was supposed to come out in December 1941, and something else happened in December 1941 that kind of shifted everybody's attention. Uh, that would be uh, of the year. That'd be Pearl Harbor. Actually, happened. Wow. Okay. Does Time Magazine actually have a Mammal of the Year? Uh, they were doing it instead of Person of the Year that yeah here. Okay, I was I yeah. was wondering what the other mammals might have been in other years. <laughs> Yeah, I, wow, I didn't think they had that kind of sense of humor back then. Yeah, well, okay. At least one time they did. Um, anyways, one last question for you here. You get this one right, you will have, you will have one, two, or three, and that'll give you a free internet point there, Dave. <laughs> okay. Child actor Donnie Dunnigan, who voiced young Bambi in 1942, had quite the career change when he grew up. What was it? A, after growing up as the voice of young Bambi, Dunnigan attended UC Davis, got a degree in zoology, and became a zookeeper at the San Diego Zoo. B. He joined the military and enjoyed a 25-year career with the U.S. Marines, spending some of that time as a drill instructor. Or C. He went to culinary school and later opened a restaurant that specializes in venison, rabbit, and skunk. <laughs> well, there is... There are so many people that have done so many voices for Disney that it seems unlikely you'd pick this out as a, a question and answer if he just went and became a drill instructor. So I'm going to cross B off the list. Okay. Let's try C. You're going to go with C. He uh, decided to cook Bambi instead of be Bambi. Now, see, you asked me that, and now I'm having second thoughts again. <laughs> What I do, Dave, is what I do. Yeah, what was A? A is uh, he attended UC Davis and became a zoologist. Right, zoologist. Um, so did he study Bambi or did he eat Bambi? All right, let's go with A. 
And go with A, the zoologist. Actually, he did join the military and he was a drill instructor. Uh, he kept quiet about the Bambi thing during his military career, but uh, opened up about it after he retired from the armed forces. Uh, Dave Howell, uh, former uh, Wizard of the Coast employee from the early days of Magic the Gathering, currently working on a new musical stage adaptation of Wizard of Oz. Pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for the wonderful stories. And you know what? We're going to give you that inter internet point anyway. Okay. Well, I know just where to put it. <laughs> well, Jim, that was fun. But uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit more about uh, current right now magic. Uh, we have Strixhaven about to come out here uh, fairly soon, about a month or so. Uh, Strixhaven, kind of a Harry Potter Hogwarts theme set, different schools of magic, uh, the, the dual colored schools of magic. Uh, what, are, what are your initial thoughts on this set as, as we are about to learn more about it? I mean, it doesn't have to be necessarily a Harry Potter theme. It could be any other sort of magical school, I guess. Uh, oh, I mean, who am I kidding? Who, yeah, who am I kidding? This is, this kidding? is the most Harry Potter thing I can imagine. But <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I think the theming is actually really interesting going from like Kaldheim, which is just like really classical, you know, old Viking sort of thing to something that I think is a lot more uh, contemporary. Mm -hmm. Especially like not just Harry Potter, but there's like other things like I don't know My Hero Academia, other ideas of like go to the school and learn this magical thing. That's sort of like a big thing now. It's quite the sea change to use a Shakespearean term. Oh yeah, very much so. But I I think it's a good one. I I like having totally different focuses from one set to the next. And um, one of the things they're doing this time around, um, I mean, it's not like it's new new, but. The way they're doing it's a little different. You have these alternate card frames of existing cards. I mean, call me crazy. I think these things look really good. They look incredible. These are like some of the most beautiful cards I've ever seen. It's like it's a stained glass window, except much, much better. It's mm -hmm. they're, they're fantastic. And then we have these Japanese ones. Uh, I know I sound like I'm just gloating about this set um almost like i'm trying to promote it but these japanese promos are equally outstanding and um it both has me excited for the set but also a little worried that they're putting so much pop into the set because maybe they're concerned there's something about it that's not quite there you know mm -hmm. i had not even thought about that i just sort of thought like why not put everything you can into every set is maybe my thought i don't know it could be that too maybe it's just hasbro saying you know what let's just give them everything every set and uh they'll they'll, they'll buy packs you know they'll, they'll buy boxes and it, it could be just that simple but do you, do you have uh, jim any any um, early hopes for this set some sort of things or themes or what have you that you're hoping you will see um i'm hoping I don't know, I'm hoping that they take this, like, uh, inspiration that they've gotten, try to do some, like, really wild things with it mechanically. Like, see how far away they can tread from, like, normal, like, magic flavor, normal magic mechanics. I, I want to see them, like, go just to the limits of imagination here. Well, not the limits of, like, card art going on. Right, and I do, I do know that with these two-colored pairs, they are taking them in a route different than you would see in like say ravnica uh so i i'm i'm hoping that fires off well and i definitely think it'll 
add a little more diversity to uh, the colored pairs and whatnot. So you, you don't see a red white deck and go, oh, it's Boros creatures and combat. Uh, mm -hmm. It'll be something else possibly. So that that I'm hoping that gets fire that fires off well. Yeah, I, I think so. I I think it's harder to say like like lots of creatures, lots of combat when we're talking about a magical school. Probably sort of have to change tack. Well, you do have defense against the dark arts. You have to worry about. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess that's true. But I mean, <laughs> okay, yeah, you got me there. Yeah, well, well, we're going to start to see uh, in just under a week uh, what some of these cards are going to be. I know a few of them when they first announced uh, the stat have have come to light, but uh, we're going to start seeing spoiler season here beginning on Thursday, March 25th. Um, we're going to have the uh, set coming out on Arena on the 15th of April, physical card pre-release starting on the 16th, and then the set comes out April 23rd. So um, we'll definitely have all the answers, at least you would hope, uh, by then. Hope so. That's, that seems is that kind of like a quicker schedule than you might expect. I there think are a lot of releases this this year. There, there, there really are. Caltime was only like many. a month. Caltime was only like a month or so ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it still feels like a brand new release. And we have um, Time Star Remastered came out today, and in about a month we're going to have another set. It's they're coming fast and furious, my friend. Fast and furious. And you know something <laughs> I'm a little furious about. To change gears, segue A perfect, is uh, a little bit of our winners and losers. We talk about the uh, three biggest winners and losers in terms of MTG finance over the past week. And uh, I'm not too happy with what I'm seeing because I'm seeing some big spikes, Jim, especially here on uh, on the, the winners. For example, your number three card here, Ashnod's Transmognet. A fairly worthless artifact from antiquities went from nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents up almost seven hundred percent to one hundred and fifty eight dollars. Quite the spike. The number two card, a bigger percentage gain, but not nearly as uh, high mo money wise as auspicious ancestors. Reserve list card from Mirage going from four bucks to. 39.50 that's uh, about an 892 percent gain and then our number one gaining card over the past week rasputin dreamweaver a re um, reserve list card from legends going from a collectible 315 dollars up 5034 percent to 16169 dollars this thing is the price of a nissan versa and uh, one thing about Dreamweaver and the Tragmognet is these do not appear to be natural gains, Jim. It looks like we have buyouts affecting uh, the organic pricing. And that's why uh, I'm a little furious about this. Yeah, that is that is the most absurd price spike I think I've ever seen for a card. It's like $16,000 for one card. How's that? That can't be. It, it, it's not. I guarantee you those are not real prices those are fantasy prices that unfortunately somebody or some parties have manipulated the GameStop the heck out of out of those cards oh. so they'll expect those to come crashing down uh, any any second now oh, and, they're, um, they're like the nfts of magic cards yes are. pretty much pretty much stonks anyway our uh, three biggest losers uh we have alesha who smiles at death the time swallow remastered version that's that would be the time shifted version it's dropped down from 450 to two bucks, lost about half its value. 
Same thing with uh, Flicker Wisp. Again, the, the um, Time Star Remastered time shifted version dropping from $8 to $3.30. That's a drop of about almost 59%. And then the non reserve list Legends card, Ramirez de Pierto, dropped from $25 bucks to $10. Much more modest on the drops. That one was 60%. Um, on this feels organic. This is just supply, demand. Um, new cards are coming, and the new set's coming out. So you're anticipating um, a, a higher volume of cards being um, available in as far as those Time Star Remastered cards are. Um, as for uh, Romero de Pierto, the Legends card, uh, maybe just failed a favor. Maybe there's an article written. Maybe there was not an article written somewhere else. I don't know, but it, it feels fine to me. Yeah, I think we saw something similar to this when Call Time was coming out. They picked out some of those cards, and those their values fell as well. We, we did. We definitely did. Yeah. And a few of them continued to fall well after the set's release. So that that's probably, I think, what we're seeing. That's probably true. I'm disappointed that Ramirez de Pietro is falling in value because that is one of the greatest card names I've ever seen. And just on the strength of that alone, it should be much more valuable than $10. You, you would think, and... Um... I mean the the art on that on that card is, is just it, it's so Captain Jack Sparrow like I, mm -hmm. I I just I love it, but at the same time it's a four three first striker for two black a blue and three it's not exactly playable, um, nor is it really all that desirable as a legend to begin with. So mm -hmm. there you have it. And uh, as far as the podcast goes, there you have it, Jim. That's uh, that's about all we have to talk about this month for the Magic Untapped podcast if you like this please uh go ahead and uh make sure you subscribe to the podcast here on spotify or itunes or wherever you listen to pod jim where do you listen to your podcasts um where do i listen to my podcast well i definitely listen to a lot of podcasts and i definitely listen to them mostly on itunes i would say on itunes yeah you know i'm an itunes guy too so uh, friends and fans, go ahead and uh, subscribe. Give us a rating. That way, uh, you know, people know that they like us or don't like us. That's fine. I, I, I'm okay with... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay, no, I'm okay. good. I'm not going to Andy Kaufman that one up. Um, anyways, it's been fun. Great having Dave Howell on. And uh, Jim, thank you for, uh, for being on this episode uh, with me yet again. No, thanks for having me on. It was a great episode to be on, I think. I think so, too. Deuces. All right, take care.